Just like industries such as aviation, railways, or the energy sector, healthcare technology is highly regulated. After all, people's lives are at stake. But who makes up the rules? And how do we know that manufacturers have been playing by them? Hello, and welcome to The Evidence Space, a podcast produced by the Institution of Engineering and Technology, which brings you conversations with leaders from health, care, and life sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bannister, and with me today are Eleanor Harwich and Claudia Martinez from the policy think tank, Reform. Eleanor, Claudia, welcome to The Evidence Space. Thank you. So can I ask you to start by introducing yourselves and giving us a fun fact for the listeners? Sure. Um, Claudia, do you want do you want to start? Okay, sure. That's that's absolutely fine. Yeah. So my name is Claudia Martinez and I am health policy lead at Reform, uh, which means that I oversee sort of all of our activities related to sort of healthcare. And I've been I've had the pleasure of, of being involved in this very exciting project that we're going to tell you about later on on the regulation of data driven technologies in healthcare. Um, and oh my goodness, for a fun fact, I would say that I'm very much into karaoke and this is a bit of a family tradition, something that we do uh, basically every week. Um, so yeah, especially now with, with the pandemic, it's it's gotten to whole new levels. It honestly has like absolutely amazing. <laughs> I must admit, sorry, Claudia, to, to you know reveal your secret. But she, did, she did tag me in this like, little Instagram video um, of her singing the Little Mermaid song, um, which I very much enjoyed because I was a very big Little Mermaid fan as a child. So I was, yeah. <laughs> and how about you, Claudia? Um, so I'm director of research at Reform, uh, which means that I kind of help develop the uh, research agenda and strategy for the organization. Um, also in charge of the kind of quality assurance process um, for projects. Um, and also, I guess, you know, have fundraising responsibilities and, and other kind of responsibilities that are um, attached to being director of research. In terms of my fun fact, um, I actually had prepared two, but I will go for, for one that might sound a bit weird. Um, but when I uh, was a child, I was quite infamous for being a napkin cheat, like thief. And I just used to go around people's places stealing napkins. Um, and the reason for this was that I used to use it as um, either bed sheets or um, little kind of tablecloths for my teddies. Um, so I just had a huge collection, which my mum one day found and was like absolutely mortified. So if anyone's missing any napkins, you can write to us at the evidence space, although probably not on the back of a napkin by the sounds of it. <laughs> So to kick off this episode, you were both recently awarded Outstanding Contribution to Tech Regulation at the COGEX conference for your work in healthcare. Can you tell me a little bit more about what, how you got involved in that initiative? Sure. Um, so actually, it's a well, the way that I see it is it kind of a long journey. It, it kind of all started, um, I think, when I had done a project um, in 2017, 18. Um, looking at the applications of artificial intelligence in healthcare, uh, specifically in the NHS, and it was a kind of um, broad brush view of what was going on, understanding the barriers, and then it had a whole section uh, quite at a high level about regulation. 
Um, and it kind of stayed in the back of my mind as like a topic that was really important that potentially needed its own deep dive. Um, and I think, you know, after publishing a few papers that were kind of related to the digital health um, agenda, I just thought to myself, we absolutely need to do this now. Um, and so that's that's how we started, really. And to be quite honest, the, the project morphed um, because I remember when Claudia and I kind of first started working on it, we thought, OK, we're going to produce like, you know, I guess the typical um, policy think tank uh, type of output, which is just a simple report. Um, and actually, it was through the interview process um, that we met up with the team at NHS England at the time. Um, NHS X didn't exist uh, and kind of started talking about things with them. Um, and then eventually the kind of partnership emerged quite naturally off the back of that. And um, and yeah, that's how that's how things started, really. You mentioned NHS X. Both within the UK, but also globally, there's been a rapid adoption of digital health over the last few years, including, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence. How did that contribute to the emerging set of standards and guidance for the regulation of these new types of technology for health and care? Um, I, think, I think that's actually quite an interesting question, because what you find with regulation for data-driven technologies is that you don't really have a specific framework that applies to data-driven health. And that's because many parts of the process are already regulated by other sort of regulations. So patient data and medical devices. So I guess the question that we had when we started the project was, let's look at the pathway, at the regulatory pathway from beginning to end, and let's really try and understand the different barriers and pinch points, and some people call it pain points that people find uh, as they go through the pathway. And that goes all through uh, sort of the point at which an innovator might have an idea for an amazing new technology uh, to all through the point at which they are able to commercialize it and they need to be thinking about post-market surveillance and how to monitor the performance of the device. And one of the things that I found really interesting about this project is that obviously the regulation is really, really evolving with the new technologies that we see. And AI and machine learning are definitely changing the way that we think about regulation. And there are some things that existing regulation already covers, but others that, uh, how, how do I put this? There are some gaps that we need to address. And even though your focus was on the UK health system, how much of the time did you find yourself referencing international guidance as well? So at times, I think potentially not as much as if the intention of the, the kind of project was to, you know, understand what needed to, to be done to plug those gaps, because the remit of the project itself at first was really just a kind of understanding what the kind of current baseline actually is. And so the, the kind of specific remit that we had was to just map the current process, current gaps, and that was it to then kind of give that as as almost like a kind of template of these are the kind of pressure points or things that are not um, kind of working that well right now, um, which is why actually in in the event that you 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 came along uh, and obviously moderated uh, Peter uh, with Imperial College that we did kind of subsequently, which was looking at how you might be able to solve some of these problems. Um, I think then in that in that kind of write-up process, I think it's easier to then kind of look at, you know, what is the FDA doing? What, what is their approach to, 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 
to kind of risk classification to, to different things. Whereas here it was, yeah, I think the kind of constraint of the project was meant that we didn't do as many international comparisons as we potentially could have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other thing that we really wanted to do with the project was to look at the role of the different regulators. So when we started the podcast, you were talking about sort of regulators and other bodies that might offer guidance. And how do you go about sort of making sense of the different regulators, but also the other types of things that you need to take into account. Um, what I thought was really key for us was to realize that the process is not particularly straightforward. So it can be quite complicated for an innovator to actually navigate the pathway. You need to engage with five regulators and then a bunch of other statutory bodies and arm length, length bodies that will offer you guidance and frameworks and things that you need to be thinking about. It's not only about getting your product on the market, but also about how do you get it commissioned by the NHS? Uh, I don't know, it's fascinating. We're, we're regulation junkies, uh, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would also say that actually that that kind of separation between guidance and regulation and and, you know, what's what guidance is most up to date and how does the guidance from one body then maps onto the guidance of another body? Does it contradict or not? I mean, it's it honestly was, I think, that the, the more the most difficult thing to do in terms of, of research was really to understand, OK, what's the most up to date piece of guidance for, for one, which might seem like a very simple question, but actually it isn't um, just because that information is quite difficult to find. And you might, you know, we, we kind of, I guess the, the general kind of feeling when we were researching this project was, you know, we thought we were done with something. And then eventually we landed on this web page with another piece of guidance and another set of principles. And we we're like, oh God, no, we have to like update and rethink. And, and it was that like that constantly. And I, I honestly thought I got to a point where I just thought to myself, we're never going to be done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because no. it was always something. <laughs> I think, I think we were um, very lucky to be able to engage with all of the regulators, which really, really helped. So we held workshops and conversations. So um, that was really useful just to be absolutely sure that we were considering sort of the latest and most updated guidance and regulation across all of the topics that we were looking at. So it sounds like you've done a lot of hard work that I doubt many engineers would want to take on. Coming back to this idea that there's so much out there that you could potentially be required to follow. How does one distinguish between the regulations that you're absolutely required to follow and those which might be irrelevant or at least optional? We've already talked about the words regulation and policy. How would you make a distinction between those two things in the health and care space? So I had a, I had a quick stab at actually just taking a couple of notes on this question because I actually thought it was a, it was a really interesting one because sometimes I think it's, it's a bit difficult to, to separate, but I think at a, at a kind of most basic level really the main difference is that if if you don't follow policy as as a kind of entrepreneur um you could still do what you you do and it could still be deemed legal i think the the kind of difference is that if you don't follow regulation then that's absolutely not okay and i think that's the kind of really biggest distinction is that you following policy might be optional. It might create obstacles in you actually being able to then sell your product to the healthcare system, because then it's just hard to make sense of, you know, how does it in this integrate into the kind of wider policy vision for the healthcare sector? And, and you might you might find it potentially slightly more difficult to articulate your value proposition in terms in which 
um, I guess people working within the healthcare system might understand. Um, however, you, I mean, you know, you, you still be completely in your right not to do so. Whereas not following regulation is obviously, again, not an option. Um, although to be quite honest, the likelihood of you being caught when you're a category one device is quite low because there is literally no kind of audit whatsoever. Um, so that's okay, I guess, but that's the kind of thing that is worrying me a lot right now, actually. Um, but at a kind of more meta level, I think policy is more about setting a kind of direction of travel. And that direction of travel can be either a kind of change in of modality of the delivery of care. Um, so say, for example, I don't know, the NHS's shift to a kind of digital first approach in healthcare. That is a kind of policy goal, which is literally just a change in modality of the delivery of care. Um, but it can also be the type of levers that you might want to put in place to achieve a specific outcome. So it can be, you know, I don't know, empowering the patient or reducing healthcare inequalities or whatever, whatever that is. And there's obviously an interaction between both because, you know, to, to be able to kind of achieve the policy goal of, say, empowering the patient through, I don't know, the use of the digital first approach, uh, you need to make sure that the regulatory framework is there in place to be able to support those goals, to make sure that you achieve them in a safe way and that you potentially limit, you know, any kind of adverse effects that you might foresee. So yeah. I guess that's how I would portray the yeah. yeah, I completely agree. I think, I think the way that I see it is essentially regulation are the rules of the game. It basically tells you what you can and what you cannot do and what can happen to you if you don't comply with the regulation. And as you say, policies are sort of those high level principles that tell you, okay, this is what we want to achieve, but also how we're gonna do it, how we're gonna go about it. Um, but yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. So earlier you referred to a, a class one device. Uh, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the way that medical devices are classified, what you're referring to there is the system where devices are classified based on the increasing level of risk. No so risk, risk is yeah. what could go wrong if they didn't perform as expected. So the least risky devices are class one, all the way up to class three, which are the highest risk devices, of course. So those maybe those are ones that have got life supporting functions or if something did go wrong, could lead to an immediate and serious injury or even death. So because the regulators have got a limited amount of resources, they quite naturally focus their attention on inspecting the high risk devices, which means that manufacturers of the lower risk devices are in many cases left to follow the rules themselves. For class one for low risk devices, it is literally you mark your own homework. But it's so to me, there's there's a like there's a there's a specific issue with with class one devices, which is kind of dual, which is one, you mark your own homework and, you know, you obviously regulators do check if, if it abides to the kind, of, the, the kind of standards that they that they set out. But no one is really going to kind of dig a bit deeper to actually see if, you know, the kind of evidence that you supplied is actually true or not. Um, and then the second thing is that ultimately on you know, the Apple App Store or Google Store or whatever it is, there's still loads of apps that could be classified as medical devices that are not. Um, and I think that that's the, the kind of scarier thing is that ultimately, because there is no audit function of the App Store or the Google Store or, you know, wherever you download your apps from, I think that's that's when you find the kind of really, I don't know, like really surprising commercial claims. I, um, I actually 
the reason why I kind of have this on my mind right now is that I, I read um, a friend's thesis, which was literally on, on this. And some of the commercial claims and things that people say are just, you know, quite surprising yeah. and very scary when you kind of look at that class one device. So say, for example, um, fertility trackers or apps or that, that type of stuff that kind of track periods and, and fertility and so on. Some of them claim that they can actually increase fertility. Which is like, how does that, like, how, how does that, how is that even logical and possible for you to add that in the description of a product that an app is going to somehow increase fertility? And that's where you see like really quite, yeah, like completely unsubstantiated commercial claims and total lack of evidence whatsoever, really. Yeah, well, that's, that's beginning to be sort of addressed, right, with, with the whole sort of introduction of the new medical devices regulation in 2021, which I think is going to be a huge kind of improvement in that respect, because all of those class one devices will be upclassed, which means potentially that you will have a system whereby you can kind of check a bit more all of those claims and that the evidence is actually there and that you can sort of ensure that things perform safely and so efficiently. I do agree to a certain extent, as in <laughs> um, for some of them, for, for those that will be upclassed, yeah, for sure. Um, but then I think there's still going to be a kind of almost like latent proportion of them that are still going to stay in that kind of gray area. Yeah. One. And I think, I think, I, I guess one of my issues with the way that things work currently, and I completely understand that it's a, it's a kind of capacity and resource thing, but I do think that if we want to do digital health right, we are going to need to invest in some sort of audit function for this. You know, I guess the same way as HMRC does random tax audits, there's no reason why you couldn't do random audits of what is on the app store to just check that, you know, at least the app store, um, the kind of Apple or Google one or which whatever one you, you, you're kind of using are also complying with the kind of new um, uh, requirements that are going to be imposed with the, with the new medical devices regulation where they, they so they as uh, basically distributors of apps will uh, be responsible for the kind of accuracy of the information that is put, put out there. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. To me, it's like, as long as, if there is no kind of um, incentive almost to, to kind of make sure because that there will be a sanction either by regulators or whatever it is, I just think, I don't know. I just don't see how it's fully going to change. But it sounds to me, from what you're saying, that it may not be realistic to expect the regulators to catch up with all those, those devices. So there's an argument to help the user, I guess usually the patient, have a better awareness of some of the risks they're taking when they might be using less regulated or even in some cases unregulated medical devices. I was seeing this thing the other day, um, um, which was a, a, a um, paper, and now I'm definitely not going to remember the title nor the author, so again, apologies. <laughs> I did read it somewhere. Yes, okay, great. Um, and it was about... Um, basically almost creating like a sort of uh like a sort of uh you know how on drugs or even on food you almost have like a fat sheet of like what's in it that that is presented in an understandable way um that can obviously kind of help with consumer choice and, and empower consumers to make better decisions maybe there is a kind of avenue like that which would allow 
people to kind of make better decisions, which would, you know, be kind of simple fact sheet that you would just present the information and maybe, maybe that's a way of going about it as well. Don't know who would yeah. develop those standards, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or maybe testing something like the ORCA model or something that allows you to have sort of a standardized way to sort of make sure that the apps that you're using and especially the apps that are being commissioned by bodies like the NHS have all of the most appropriate evidence that you need. Yeah. To make so ORCA, O-R-C-H-A, is like a gatekeeper organization exactly. looking at digital yeah. apps, which are actually in the process of trying to get adopted by the National Health Service in the UK. So it sounds like a way of delegating that specific role of practical evaluation. Um, policy here is um, things you aren't compelled to follow, but if you don't follow them, you might find yourself at the back of the queue behind other manufacturers who are following it. I, I was gonna say that, I mean, the capacity issue and the resourcing issue is not insignificant because I mean, all of the conformity assessments, that's sort of the process that you have to go through in order to obtain the C marking, which is sort of the, the um, accreditation that allows you to place a product, a medical device on the market. And that can be software, that can be an app that's usually done by the notified bodies that work with the MHRA, which is the Medicines Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Um, and obviously with Brexit and everything that's happening, there will be sort of more pressure on these notified bodies to actually do more uh, when we're thinking about the upclassing of those devices that will go to them. Um, so yeah, if we can find ways to actually delegate some of that responsibility in a way that works and that is accessible and that it's affordable to the system, I think we should do, we should do so. So I think in some ways it's very interesting you mentioned the CE mark because Drawing parallels with the engineering domains, industries outside of healthcare, many people, both engineers, but also consumers in general, are familiar with the idea of a CE mark. You know, it, it signifies some level of safety compliance if you buy a children's toy or an electronic device like a radio. In Europe, though, the CE mark is also a requirement for healthcare devices. And in those cases, signifies that the manufacturers met all of the relevant regulations for their intended use. And similarly across the globe, there are equivalent requirements. So for example, in the States, there's the Food and Drug Administration who also authorize devices. I guess to me that underlines the transferable skills in terms of understanding safety and performance requirements that many engineers already understand. But as we get closer to the detail and despite all of this guidance, it sounds like it's still challenging for a manufacturer to determine what rules they may or may not need to follow when validating their device. Yeah. Ellie, Claudia, we're running out of time, I'm afraid, but I'd really like to carry on this conversation in the next episode of The Evidence Space, if you can stay with us for that. In this episode of The Evidence Space, we focused on the topic of regulation of new technologies for healthcare and life sciences. We've heard how these industries deserve their reputations for being highly regulated, and yet there are ways in which manufacturers can jumpstart their pathway to compliance. Key to this is to first be able to understand and describe the intended use of the new technology. Once this has been characterized, it's possible to work out which regulations apply and what kind of evidence needs to be collected to satisfy them. We've also explored the relationship between the regulations and other forms of guidance such as policies. 
Policies, for example, can move more quickly in response to enthusiasm for the potential offered by a new technology, whereas the regulations may take longer to catch up. However, while the regulations are mandatory, we've also heard why it makes sense to comply with policies as well in terms of ensuring adoption by clinicians and patients alike. Join us in the next episode where we'll learn more about how to reconcile the potential offered by new technology with the role of the regulations in ensuring the safe and principled use of that on patients. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of The Evidence Space. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please get in touch. And thank you very much for listening.